come here. Come here for a minute. No, come here. It's okay. It's okay. I got something to tell you. Yeah. No, no, no. It's cool. Hey, listen. You new here? Uh-huh. You new here, huh? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Where are you from? Oh, yeah? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, listen. You know what's going on around here? You don't. You don't. Yeah. That's sure. Because ain't nothing going on. Ain't nothing. Uh-uh. Nothing going on around here. Nothing. Unless you're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, 88.3. That's the only thing happening here. The only thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Okay, we'll see you, kid. Yeah, take care. Take care, yeah. Hey. Hey, kid. Kid. Look out. Look out. Look out. Oh. Ah. Oh. Oh. oh, tune in next week. afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have in studio Christopher Hubert here with his latest, the novel Angels of Detroit. Um, Chris, welcome back to Living Writers. Well, thanks for having me back, T. We were talking about how it's been a, it's been a, a, a few years since the boiling season. That's right. It Probably not as long as it feels like. Yes, it feels too long. We must do this again sooner. <laughs> I'm going to have to start writing my books a lot faster. I know. You've got to Joyce Carol Oates it up, okay? That's right. <laughs> um, and I, I'll say we're taping the program. It's September 26, 2016, um, when when Chris Hebert joins me in the studio. And you're in town to do a reading, um, and and the, the 
the book's like debut here in Ann Arbor at Literati. That's right. That's right. Tonight at Literati. And and um, and Margaret Lazarus Dean will also be reading with you. It's a double um, feature. And Margaret's book is Leaving Orbit: Notes from the Last Days of American Spaceflight. That's right. So you got a little Detroit, a little spaceflight. Something for everybody. I think that you can't go wrong with that, right? No, I don't think so. I mean, you're like, think locally, think globally, <laughs> think extraterrestrially, universally. Look at you. It's awesome. <laughs> we um, couldn't have planned it better. Well, Chris, later in the program, we'll hear a, a bit of the prose from Angels of Detroit. Um, but first, I'm I'm yucking it up here with you because I'm so glad to see you uh, and you returning here to Michigan. But I'm going to read your short bio off the back of the book before we get started officially. Christopher Hebert is the author of the novel The Boiling Season, winner of the 2013 Friends of American Writers Award. His short fiction and nonfiction have appeared in such publications as five chapters, Simone Review, Narrative, Interview, and The Millions. He is a graduate of the University of Michigan and is editor-at-large for the University of Michigan Press. Hebert is currently the Jack E. e. Reese writer in residence at the University of Tennessee Libraries and lives in Knoxville, Tennessee. But we're lucky to have you here today, Chris. Well, thank you for having me. It's good to see you. So um, so you do have, you're, it's kind of it's a homecoming of sorts today, walking the streets, you were saying. Yeah, in a lot of ways. You know, this book also, I mean, that, that, that biography is also in some ways a story of this book because this book began when I moved to Ann Arbor in 1998. I started writing it that many years ago. 1998? Yeah, when I came here for, for graduate school, and this this was the project that I started working the mo- pretty much the moment I landed. Did you have the project before you came here, or what happened? I, I don't imagine, because did you move from Syracuse, or where were you? Where were you? No, I was, I was in St. Louis the year before. So I'd, I'd had this long, sort of unplanned tour of the Rust Belt that I'd been doing for a long time, you know. Why so, not? <laughs> so part of, you know, Syracuse, part of the sort of central New York Rust Belt corridor. I went to school in, in in uh, southwest Ohio, outside of Dayton. Then I moved to St. Louis, and then I came here and started hanging out in Detroit. So, you know, I think I carried a lot of the book with me because I'd been puzzling through the Rust Belt and, you know, shrinking cities for a long time. And so I arrived here. I mean, in, in some ways, the, the the absolute genesis of the book was from the year before when I was living in St. Louis, and I happened to be driving to work one day, and I heard on the radio... Um, this is a local call-in show, and I had some experts talking on, talking about the pros and cons of turning downtown St. Louis into farmland. Because you know, St. Louis, like Detroit, is another city that has suffered tremendously from you know deindustrialization and and uh, population loss and loss of economy. And then I moved here the next year, and I heard the same exact thing about Detroit. You know, a different radio station, a different city, but the same thing. You know, what are we doing with? What are we going to do with Detroit? You know, and I, because I'd grown up in a place that, on a much smaller scale, was you know wrestling with these same problems, I just sort of felt like, all right, this is, this is the question that I want to that I want to you know think some more about. Like, what does it mean? What do these places mean? And what does it mean to live in cities that people are talking about completely transforming into, into something the likes of which we've never seen before? And because of struggle, because of loss, and that trans transition yeah you know these like cities what will be next right you know these Could cities be. were once something that we understood you know we know what a city is a city is a place where you know uh, manufacturing happens and people live and work and there's all this activity what is it 
what is a city then when all of that has stopped? And, you know, in places like Detroit and St. Louis were among the largest examples of places where those activities had just come in a lot of ways to a screeching halt or moved out to the suburbs, at least. But To, to you know, use a car metaphor. Right. So, you know, just the fact that people are thinking about, well, obviously this isn't working anymore. So we need you know, to consider something as radical as, OK, from now on, a city is really a farm. It's where we're going to be. They're going to be fields and, you know, threshing machines and you know, it was just a crazy thing to imagine, but people were talking about it as if it's a serious thing. And I thought, I guess, you know, it is a serious thing. Yeah. And to some extent, those this was 15 years ago, but that conversation is still going on. I mean, it's a, it's a huge part of the conversation right now in, in Detroit. You know, we're sort of in the early moments of a renaissance here, um, but no one really knows what the city is going to look like. And, and some of that talk about, you know, turning it into orchards and different kinds of farms is still very much, you know, a potential reality. Yeah. And so when you came here in 98 and you, you've had sort of the Rust Belt with you, I think in another interview, you talk about riding in a car with your dad in Syracuse and he would, he would point to places and say, well, this used to be here, this used to be Mm -hmm. there. And so you already had a sense as a boy, it sounds like of this, like disappearances and, Mm -hmm. and someone else's loss of, them. Yeah, I think it's it's strange growing up in a place like that because, you know, so much of it, it seems to exist in the past. You know, my father had a sense, you know, of Syracuse, of like what it had been and what it was. And you grow up there and you feel like, okay, but what is, you know, it's I, now I'm living here. And what does this mean for me? Like if, if, if all we can talk about is what we had, you know, what, what is, what is my life going to be like here? You know, it, it, it feels like you're being told, you know, you, you can only exist in, in the past in a place like this. There's no going forward. The, the future is just extraordinarily uncertain. And I think that really fueled my sense of, I, I just don't see a future for myself in in Syracuse. Although, you know, nevertheless, I found myself going to other Rust Belt places. So I didn't, I didn't exactly. Right. It didn't scare you off completely. You weren't haunted out of, to the, to a coast <laughs> to, to the east or west coast. Yeah, but it very you much came to the third coast. <laughs> yeah, but if you'll, you know, those questions as a writer were sort of interested in lives and characters. And for me, I think when my father was pointing at these abandoned places where you know jobs used to be or people used to live, like my mind went to what? Who were those people that were living here? Because all you know, all you can see now is just an absence or a vacancy. But would you and... start imagining? Absolutely, then you saw yeah. Like an overlay of the place. Yeah, I think you know the imagination seeks to fill what isn't there. And for me, it was okay. What what was this landscape? And how did we get to this point? And what does it mean that we've arrived here? And then, of course, you come to Detroit and you see that on a grand, just incredible scale. Well, you know, hearing you talk about Syracuse, I was thinking, I'm I'm sure a lot of people from Detroit would also say that's that I can understand that I can I mean we we talk about Henry Ford, we talk about Motown, we talk about so many amazing historical mm-hmm. moments. Yeah, and Detroit is very much a unique and singular place, and you know this this is definitely a book about Detroit, but there are also commonalities. You know, there are there are parts about this story that. I think are are true of a particular moment we find ourselves in. And you know, it's something that we're hearing about now constantly on the campaign trail. You know, all this talk about economic communities that have been left behind and it's very much those rust belt towns and those people who used to have middle class lives in manufacturing and you know, it's not and Detroit is one of the places that both presidential candidates have come to to talk about, you know, all of that here, but it's it's not just here. It's in Pennsylvania, it's in Indiana and 
Illinois. And, and it's interesting now living in Tennessee because, of course, you know, a, a lot of the auto manufacturing that used to take place here, you know, fled it south. It has gone south. And, you know, not a small amount of that is in Tennessee now. And it's... It's it's just it's interesting. It's interesting to to have had tasted you know both both pieces of this. You know the having been from the north, but you know being now in the south, and and also thinking maybe um, some of the same. I don't know. Not having maybe making sure that you're diversifying what you're doing, <laughs> and, um, that might be a lesson. Because even if the the car companies are there for the moment. Who knows where they'll yeah that move was next. that was a big part of the Detroit story was just that it was built around one single solitary industry and then that when that fell apart there was there was less to keep it going but that you know that hasn't been true and you know and St Louis was much more diversified and and Syracuse never had one dominant industry um, and it had you know was sort of flexible throughout its its history but it hasn't really saved it now you know it on a much smaller scale is experiencing the same struggles as as uh, as Detroit, and you hear some of the same sort of grand plans there for saving it, and you know, investing in this scheme or that scheme that'll be the the savior, and it's it's rarely that that easy. You know, it's like all this talk of if not for NAFTA, Detroit would still be like it was in the '80s. It's like it's not quite that simple. It's a much more complex story. You know, Detroit started unraveling in the fifties, you know, with as, you know, as much to do with race as, as anything else. And it's, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of deep rooted problems that are not, that are not China's fault. And it's, and it's not that you, you want to shy away from, um, conflict, controversy, um, within your novel Angels of Detroit. But I think it's also interesting that it, it feels like there's a lot of empathy here. And it's like, these are stories that it feels like you want to leave us the readers with hope. I hope so. It's it's been interesting to see the sort of division. I, I uh, the response I've gotten from reviewers and readers exists on extreme opposite ends of the spectrum. It's been really interesting. On the one hand, there are uh, readers who see it as full of hope or you know pointing in a hopeful direction, and then there are others who feel like it's a book about the apocalypse. And you know, and Detroit. Be warned. Be warned. As goes Detroit, goes <laughs> yeah. the nation. Or so. Let's take a short break, and then maybe we can pick up and talk about this a little more when we come back. And um, we'll hear some more of uh, Chris's musical selections for the show today, because um, you can also find them on um, Chris Hebert's post on Large Hearted Boy. If you'd want to know more about each song um, today on the program. Christopher Hebert is here. His novel, Angels of Detroit. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back.
welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. Today on the program, Christopher Hebert is here, his novels, Angels of Detroit. And we've got the Liz behind the glass, engineering the soundscape for us. And Chris, thanks for picking the songs for today. Um, that one was <laughs> that uh, that one. It's an eclectic your mix. Pro- yeah. Your process. Yes, it's, we're going to be roving around having some. This song seems more keyed into you as a writer in your process. What you I do like disappearing into soundscapes when I write. I like I've got a thing for sort of cacophony and angularity and just weirdness. Things that just don't distract me. I, I really like listening to music, but uh, I just I don't know. There's there's just something about my brain that just sort of sinks and disappears into into noise at a certain level and i i remember being a kid and visiting my my uncle was a painter and he used to i'm going to his studio and he used to like to listen to like power drills and these sounds of just the crazy weird yeah he would paint to this he would paint to like construction workers and glass breaking and all of this i don't know something about that sunk in and now as a writer i like to listen to just i like noise it sounds like as you're describing it and I can see you and it seems like you open into it like it's almost as if you're describing this moment of your mind opening up into something that others might shut down <laughs> during. But others like more... my wife in particular, who is also a writer and <laughs> flees the house whenever she hears. Oh, so you're, hears so you're not wearing headphones when you're you're writing. You're, it's and just... In order to stay married, I had to buy headphones, but... I think she finds that she can't even just be in the house just knowing that that music is happening is enough to force her out. <laughs> okay. The plus, on the plus side, I have the entire house to write in, and she likes to go. Exactly. She goes somewhere else. <laughs> Everybody wins. Exactly. When, and one day, we'll, I'll have to get Margaret on the show so she can tell her side of the, the musical, I don't know, saga. Yeah, I'd like to hear household. that side myself. <laughs> um, before the break, Chris, we were talking about how, because um, the book came out, in July, so in the summer, mm-hmm. right, it was released. And so you've been getting some different feedback. I I noticed it seems important that you also, you've talked to the Detroit Free Press, mm-hmm. like you've talked to Detroit papers, you've talked, you know. Yeah, that's been interesting too, because that, you know, I was saying earlier that a lot of the response have been at one end of the spectrum or other. And there's a new, just in the last couple of weeks, I've been talking more and more with Detroit, yeah, the Detroit News and Detroit Free Press, Press and other, and hearing from Detroit readers and a lot of what I'm hearing now is uh, neither of those extremes, but more like this is a book about the past and what, you know, what almost happened or, or what Detroit might have been if not for the fact that now Detroit is on the rebound. Because, you know, cool things are happening in Detroit and Detroit is on the rebound in interesting ways. But it always surprises me that we've so quickly gone from Detroit, Detroit is bankrupt and beyond saving to suddenly everything's okay. And I'm not quite sure I totally buy into that everything is okay now yeah. narrative. Yeah. Seems like we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. It Well, it definitely feels like, um, I don't, I mean, as also a, a newcomer to the, the region, I, I, I just, I feel like people have had that experience before in different decades. Mm-hmm. And then there's been like a corrupt politician <laughs> or some, something comes yeah. along to derail it. And right yeah. now, I mean, maybe we, we have some corporations mm-hmm. that are, are, are doing, mm-hmm. I don't know, providing a lot of money, some jobs, but also taking a lot of land and <laughs> we don't know what will happen. And, um, and you know, there's I a suppose. desire to be hopeful, you know, it's been so long since 
Detroiters in the area had things to feel good about and to have a sense that things are moving in the right direction. And now we do. We have that sense that, okay, it feels like things are going on here and that they will add and multiply. And that's great. But, you know, so much of what's going on is, you know, it's about downtown. It's about the business quarter. And there's still a lot of question marks for the city on a larger scale yeah and the electricity and the people who live there. regular and water yeah yeah there's still not a lot of jobs being created and uh so and just you know still just dealing with all of the issues that led us to where we are which are deep-rooted and go far back into the past but I think that's why I was uh, eager to start our conversation today, Chris, with talking about your origin, like your connection to the mm-hmm. moment um, of this of the story and and living with it for mm-hmm. about 16 years yeah. or so. Because so this is something that you wrote, you did started drafts on. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a tome, everybody. This <laughs> is like it's 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 a it's a it's a heavy book. Um, it, it's not your brother, but it's a heavy, <laughs> it is heavy. Um, Ho- hopefully and, heavy in the other sense. Too. Yeah, that's, yes, it is. It is. There's so much. It's and when Heavy it, in the MC5 kind of sense. That would be great. <laughs> yes. Um, and for, it's like, yeah. So, and, and it's got many voices within it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that might be also part of your plan, taking on this, this story that's many people's stories mm-hmm. and so many different perspectives that are interwoven throughout. It was the a st- book. yeah. It was a book that was took a long time to come together, and I think it it had to take a long time to come together. You know, I I I wasn't necessarily always so charitable toward how long it was taking, but you know, now I can look back on it and see, you know, there there's a reason that I needed to work on this and set it aside and come back to it and work on it. It was, you know, the the book. Uh, evolved very organically. I had very little sense early on of what I was doing. You know, I just, I had some sort of large questions about what it means to live in places like these. Uh, and, you know, and when I very, when I first started out in 1998, um, or I guess it was 99, um, in some ways it was, I, I was dealing with something that was more composite of, it was partly Detroit, it was partly Syracuse, it was partly St. Louis, it was partly all these places along the Rust Belt that I lived. But, you know, I was here a long time, and over time, you know, Detroit took over. Um, but, you know, I was, I was just, I was wrestling with big questions. And so, I, you know, I would, I would follow a character for a while, and that character would lead me to other characters, and then I would follow them for a while. You know, and I think you can see some of that in the early chapters. It sort of starts with a sort of archetypal stranger comes to town and you know the dobbs. the stranger yeah dobbs and he wanders upon these political the cell of political activists uh and i became interested in them and i followed them and they led me to this corporation that they have been you know demonstrating against uh but then i became interested in you know this this person that they had uh decided in that corporation was sort of responsible for all of the problems of the city. And I became interested about her. So Ruth Freeman. Right. So I found myself as a writer going up into the tower and, and spending some time with her and becoming interested in her. So when you say that, are you speaking imaginatively or are you saying, I I went, (laughs) so the research behind this. So then you came upon a corporate character. Mm -hmm. And so you went downtown. Tell us this story. Well, I mean, so this is for research. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't. I guess I didn't literally go downtown, but like literally as a writer, I just I, I found myself stopping, you know, working. I'd be working on one set of characters, and then I would stop that chat. That chapter would end, 
And the next chapter, rather than picking up where that story left off, would move into the office tower where this woman was and thinking about her life and her work and, you know, her perspective on all of this. And, and over time, very, very gradually, it became clear to me that, okay, this is a book. It's not just that the book is made up of all of these perspectives, but in a lot of ways, it's a book about perspective. You know, it's about the various ways in which these really conflicting views coexist in this place. You know, this the story of Detroit is extraordinarily complex and, you know, there's not a lot of agreement about what to do and what the solutions are. Um, and so it... And who's, who's telling the story in a way. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, so early on I had, there were a few different character groups that I was following and a few different storylines that I had a sense of. But as I went, more came to me and I sort of, you know, I realized there were aspects of this that I, I needed to explore that I hadn't been talking about. So, you know, the sort of urban farming angle was something that came in somewhat late in the book. You know, I had this elderly character, but I didn't quite know what she was doing. But then I... Constance. Yeah, Constance. Uh, and a lot of those characters that came in later were among my favorites. And, and Constance's great-granddaughter, who, you know, lives in one of those really uh, isolated sort of pockets of uh, of a neighborhood um, and sort of imagines this abandoned, neglected space as her playground and, you know, sort of child's eye view of this world too. Uh, so some of, you know, some of them I had from the beginning and some I stumbled upon later as, you know, this, the city sort of came to life and, you know, as, as these characters just started intersecting with one another, new, new possibilities emerged. And, and so for this, Chris, so I think I was taking you a little bit too literally earlier. <laughs> so it wasn't that you had this, you came up with this character and then you thought, well, I'll go, I'll even go downtown and I'll talk to some of these people in the corporate offices or anything. It wasn't like, that wasn't the way the research played out. Yeah, no, but, no, that, it was much more imaginative than that. And, and, you know, and it was also important to me that I, I you know, I, I didn't, this is not a car corporation. And so you know, I, I wanted it to be clear, you know, there, there is a lot of actual Detroit in this, but this is a work of the imagination. And, you know, I was, especially in something that is, you know, sort of tangles with political stuff. I, I wanted it to be clear that this is all of my, of my imagination. And, and so when you, but being here and being near Detroit, because earlier you said Detroit, like even though there's other, your influences are Rust Belt cities mm -hmm. and, and like where, kind of where you're from. Um, but Detroit took over. And so you were able to actually root it to this place. Yeah. yeah. Did you start going into the city? Like were you like your like your feel for it? What what part of the research took you into the city itself just yeah. to, like for people thinking about projects yeah it was a, a lot just going in and exploring you know just just driving around you know part of it was you know we would go into rock shows and restaurants and museums and you know music festivals and all of that um but also i've just go in to just explore just part driven just in large part by my curiosity you know i i, I used to do that in st louis i would do that in syracuse i just you know, it's sort of that, again, that imagination filling in holes. Just I'm really drawn to places like this. Um, 
Uh, but I forgot what the first part of the question was. <laughs> Just, no, you're doing wonderfully. Just the, the researching, like what did it take you into the city? That was all. Yeah. It. And I, so, you, yes, it did. <laughs> it, it did. And, but, you know, there were some deeply research intensive um, portions of the book. You know, a, a lot of the stuff that is set in our contemporary moment or at least over the last 15 years that was a product of me just moving through space and seeing what I was seeing and, and, you know, putting pieces together. But there are also portions of the book that take place in the past. There's one chapter in particular, and in particular that is set in the uh, late 1950s. And so that was a hugely research intensive chapter when I was sort of imagining, you know, the other side of the golden age of Detroit, which for a lot of people, you know, is what they have in mind when they're thinking about the trouble that the city now finds itself in there. You know, they're contrasting it against this earlier brilliant time when everything seemed great and it was one of the most important cities in the country, one of the largest and richest. And seems- a lot of people have nostalgia for that. And so I need, I wanted, you know, what probably the most research intensive part for me was capturing that nostalgia. And it seems like that's so critical in a book that's, that's roaming mm-hmm. as far and has having so many perspectives to include that part of the city. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was, you know, spending time, you know, going into that corporate tower and finding that executive there. She was the one that I ultimately came around to understanding you know, she is that connection to that past. She is the one who feels nostalgic for that Detroit. Well, let's take a short break. And when we come back, maybe you'll read us a bit about Ruth Freeman. Okay. Yeah, okay. Sure. Um, you've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Christopher Hebert is here. His novel, Angels of Detroit. We'll be right back. Today on the program, Christopher Hubert is here. His novel, Angels of Detroit, out this summer um, with Bloomsbury Press. Um, So, Chris, we've been talking about um, the characters involved um, and the the interweaving storylines and how you kind of found almost one character led to another. And you actually said, and then I found myself from the activist. Who are they protesting and then we get to, what chapter is it? Is it chapter? This is chapter 14. So it's sort of toward midway through okay. the book. We meet Ruth Freeman. Yeah. And so this is the moment when, uh, you know, I sort of, I realized that, you know, Ruth Freeman was somebody who could connect us to the Detroit, the golden, golden age Detroit. And her perspective all on all of this was colored by her own childhood experiences growing up, you know, wealthy and privileged in a town 
that was still working very well for a lot of people, but certainly not for everyone. How did you choose her name, Chris? Because like, because before we were talking yeah. about, I think you said Constance and and her great her great granddaughter Clementine. They they become like this sort of a heart of the book once mm-hmm. we find them. Um, and so names seem important <laughs> and you're you would think so yeah. wouldn't you so was ruth freeman one of those like did that have you know i she is one of the earliest characters that i that i started with really be, because of the way i just sort of followed from one to another and i, I was led fairly quickly to her i honestly do, i just i feel like her name just appeared on the page and it's one of few that i didn't didn't later change i think most of the names in the book mm. except for the later ones like Constance and Clementine went through numerous iterations, but I feel like she was always Ruth Freeman. I don't know. I guess it, I guess it seemed fitting right from the start. Maybe, yeah, maybe. And I think certainly, I'm glad that you chose to read this because the opening for this chapter feels very gen- like it's like, well, I don't know. Let's hear it, it and takes then you maybe immediately back. maybe okay. we can talk about it. Yeah. So this is yeah. This is so this is where the chapter begins. Ruth Freeman had never cared for cars at least not in the way her brothers did. When they were teenagers, it had been all about fins, the roads swollen with schools of these absurd terrestrial fish. The power, the speed, she got all that. She just never understood why there needed to be so many different kinds, so many she could never tell them apart. Whatever the distinctions were between a Dodge and a DeSoto, they meant nothing to her. She simply wanted one. She didn't care what kind. In 1956, her father brought home a brand new two-tone roadmaster with a grill like a sleeping toad. Her brothers got their turns first, and when they were done, Ruth slipped under her father's arm and into the driver's seat, wrapping her slim fingers around the knotty wheel. She was 16 and had never driven before, but she had the posture and the gestures down pat. Will you teach me how? she asked her father, who stood with his hand on the door, the smile wiped from his face. With a stiff laugh, he said, no, no, no. Her brothers would take her wherever she needed to go. And then he reached in and removed the keys from the ignition. She made up her mind that very moment that she would never ask anything from him again. Her father brought home a new car every couple of years. Her brothers inherited the old ones. In 58, Gus got the Roadmaster. By then, his friends were driving Corvettes and Thunderbirds, fish transformed into torpedoes. And the Roadmaster was already as boxy as a casket. As for Ruth, she might not have cared so much about having nothing to drive if she could have taken the streetcar, but they'd ripped up the last of the tracks in 53, and there was no dignity in a bus. So she did what any girl would do, and that summer when she turned 18, she told Francis Statler she'd go steady with him as long as he let her drive. He wasn't the brightest boy, but he had dimples and held open doors and called everyone sir and ma'am. Besides, she'd known him forever. They lived only a few blocks apart in Palmer Woods, and although he went to Kingswood Cranbrook and she went to Girls Catholic Central, their circles were more or less the same. They saw each other at socials and dances, at Tom Clay's Saturday night balls at the Armory. Francis was always staring at her through the bottom of an empty punch glass. In the summer, they'd mingled deck chairs at the pool of the Detroit Golf Club, where their fathers shot rounds together. Her father worked in management at Ford, slowly edging his way up. Francis's father was at GM, already a big cheese. On the fairway, Ruth's father said Mr. Statler had a hopeless slice, but that didn't stop the club from giving him his very own brass plaque at the top of the donor wall. Francis Statler meant well, but he could never quite give up, keep up, despite his father's money. He wasn't unattractive. Besides the dimples, he had deep hazel eyes and the straightest teeth Ruth had ever seen. His face was warm and inviting, 
but he parted his hair just like his father, and he'd been wearing the same plaid shirt since grade school. Francis was either indifferent to fashions or unaware of them. He always stood out, the one boy clinging to cotton twill slacks in a world that had moved on to blue jeans. In 58, when every teen in the city was covering, co coveting sport coupes, Francis bought a turquoise Edsel. At least it was a convertible. From the far front, the car looked like a disgruntled koala bear, but all Francis cared about were the frills, touch-button transmission, glowing cyclops eye speedometer, power windows and seats. He could afford every option they offered. Some of her girlfriends expected Ruth to be embarrassed to be seen in something so uncool. Doesn't everyone stare? Donna asked. But Ruth simply shrugged. Anything was better than nothing. And besides, people didn't really stare at Francis. He somehow managed to get away with being strange. Were anyone to ask him his secret, Francis wouldn't even have understood the question. Before Ruth took him up, Francis had no close friends. Hours might pass at the pool without anyone speaking a word to him, and yet the dopey dimpled smile never left his face. It was impossible to exclude someone who didn't notice he was being excluded. Whatever was happening, Francis was always there. He became a sort of mascot, though no one could have said exactly what it was he represented. He rarely spoke, never danced, didn't drink, and yet by the time he and Ruth made their arrangement, a belief had spread throughout both their high schools that the dullest parties were the ones from which Francis Statler happened to be missing. For every gathering, someone was invariably dispatched to ensure Francis's arrival, after which Francis would spend the entire evening by himself, examining his host's parent I'm sorry, the host's parents' collection of ivory statuettes until it was time for someone to take him home. For Ruth, the best thing about Francis Statler was that he didn't mind handing her the keys. When they were together, the Edsel was hers. It was Ruth cruising Belle Isle with the top down, Ruth soaring north to the charred remains of Jefferson Beach, and there was Francis grinning beside her with the wind in his teeth. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, it's... it's it seems good for us to hear about some cars <laughs> and the you wind. couldn't avoid the cars forever no no not not in this book no way um the wind in his teeth convertible after all i know that's a really that's a great moment that's really that's so yeah so these two characters when you're can you talk talk with us a little bit about like re-entering the story then um that you've lived with for so long and when you, you yeah, read it aloud well you know it's interesting I, I started this book and, we, and we've been talking to this point about like sort of larger questions and almost like social issues but I think you spend a minute with the book and you realize it's just really entirely about these particular people and their lives um, and that was part of the challenge in writing this too is that I just I became interested in the in the backdrop of Detroit, but as I had been all my life, you know, I was imagining the lives and the people. And so, you know, the, one of the great joys of writing this book was getting to inhabit these lives one at a time. And I still, I still love going back and, and reading these moments, you know, these moments that I got to imagine, you know, Ruth Freeman as a teenage girl in the fifties and, and that life. Uh, you know, I, I guess it's, it's what I love about writing and it's still what I enjoy about this book. The, that being able to imagine someone else's situation and their backstory to see where they are now. And... Yeah, especially in a book that's driven so much by perspective, that's driven by these conflicting stories. You know, I I guess that, you know, the, the luxury of being writers is that we get to ask difficult questions and pursue complicated things without really resolving or, 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 or answering them. And so, 
you know, it, the, the complexities of of Detroit are inextricably with with the, the state of Detroit. Um, and you know, I I couldn't write a story that didn't honor those those complexities. And so I, I find it interesting that you know, the chapters of the act, activists butt up against the chapters of their nemesis. And I enjoy taking both of them seriously and caring about their lives as individuals. That seems important, so that you have that there's not. A, a judgment that's placed. It's more than, like we said, I think it looked like an understanding, like thinking about individual stories and perspectives. So there's maybe building empathy, like the power of story. Yeah. Judgments just bring things to an end and sort of, you know, shut down stories and shut down discussions, but yeah, sort of expanding empathy and expanding interest in a lot of different directions. You, you end with a story that's even larger than itself, you know, that, that has all of these, I don't know. I mean, I think part of the, the the resonance of a of a multi vocal project are, are you know are the spaces between the lives as well as the lives themselves. The spaces between. Yeah, you know, I it this this project was was hard to figure out, um, and it took you know this was the first book I started, but it was the second book I published. You know, I fairly regularly found myself um, not sure what I was doing with this book and I, and I would reach a point where I had run a lot, written a lot of material, but I just didn't know where it was going. And so at a certain point I started writing another book and I would go back and forth. Um, and the other book, the first one I published was, was more conventional more straightforward in a lot of ways. And I think it took writing that for me to get some perspective on this book and realize, okay, this is a different kind of book. This is, it's not an accident that it's built around all of these voices. It's not a problem that it's somewhat fractured and fragmented. It's the, to be and it's sort of reflective of a community that's fragmented and fractured you know there are a lot of points of isolation um you know in a, in a city in which you know so much has has gone away and disappeared um but you know but this is a book about the people who have remained who are still fighting for this place but you know they're they exist. such an important point <laughs> yeah but but you know they're they're their lives don't necessarily intersect because it's an enormous city with a lot of emptiness in it. Um, and the, the fragments and the different voices for me, it just became reflective of that. We'll take a short break. You've got living writers today on the program. Christopher Hebert is, is here. Angels of Detroit, a novel on the table with us. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Welcome back. 
You've Got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Christopher Hebert is here, Angels of Detroit, a novel. Um, and Chris is a friend of the show, having been here when The Boiling Season was first published. Um, we were just talking about that in the last quarter, how it's interesting. Like, So thinking about projects that people have going on in their lives and what you kind of expect from your writing. And I thought it was quite wonderful that you said, I think I needed to write the boiling season first. I had to have this, write this different type of mm -hmm. novel. Also epic. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, we'll see if you're going to pull a Lydia Davis anytime soon, but I don't know. That is my grand ambition. <laughs> my ambition is to get smaller. Absolutely. I don't know. Or just go, go, go longer. Go, go keep... Yes, don't do not be denied, Chris. Um, but we and we started like through the program, actually, kind of in accidental moments, talking about process and writing. And and uh, before the last break, um, we were talking about like this book, like how it's it's taken a number of 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 years. And how how do you not also give up on something? Like how do you know to stay with it? That's a good question. And I, I don't entirely know why I didn't give up because there were, you know, plenty of opportunities and moments in which I just gotten as far as I could. And I, I, I really, you know, because I started out with no plan and because I let the book evolve organically and because I just sort of followed my interests and pursued them where they came up, you know, I just, I found myself at a certain point with a lot of material, but I, I you know, I had never given a thought to how it was all going to fit together. And I think, you know, What's clear to me now is that I, I wasn't a smart enough writer to write this book when I started it. You know, I, I had a vision and a sort of grand unifying question that I was interested in, but I, I really was just not a smart enough writer to pull it off. You know, my, my ambition outstripped my ability, I think, early on. Um, and so, you know, I think what, what I would do is, you know, I would go back to working on the other book and that gave me some distance from Angels of Detroit. It gave me some time to set it aside. And then when I came back to it, I would be a little bit smarter because I'd been working on something else and I'd been working through other problems and I would come back and I would see new things. And, and part, what, part of what I was seeing, especially toward the end, was the gaps. You know, for instance, like the material I was reading earlier, I, I became aware at a certain point that, you know what, I don't have anything that's tying this back to the, the past of this city. You know, in order to understand where we are now, you know, you, you have to be able to to, to, to play it against, you know, what, what came before. And, um, and so, you know, each time I came back, I would write new material and I still, I think, you know, intellectually, I wasn't quite sure how it fit together, but I was just operating by instinct. Um, did you ever start drawing it out, Chris? Cause I wondered like if you had like a map of constellations, like where some of the characters are placed on some map of your own that might have been not smart, like a city huh? map of course <laughs> but like a... <laughs> but no yeah, I in retrospect it. i should have that would have been a, that would have been the smart thing to do <laughs> no i no don't go down <laughs> that no no because i love how you said evolve i was letting it evolve organically because that actually sounds quite brave yeah i mean I, I think you know now i've written two books now and, and i feel like i can say you know having done so that i'm a smarter writer and, and now I have confidence that I am a person who can write a book. But the truth remains that every book is a different project and it presents different challenges and you have to learn how to write each new book. You know, I guess maybe unless you 
are really writing the same sorts of things over and over again. But I, you know, I, I like new challenges, new problems, and you know, I, I like allowing books to find their own shape. And so for me, I don't think there's any substitute for some of the wandering. Um, you know, I, I think now as I'm working, I can see things a little bit more clearly. I can see into the future a bit and understand where I'm going. And, and that's something new, but I still think I, I probably will never stop being the sort of writer who feels my way through things. And like, when did you know you were that kind of, like, cause that seems like a value, like one of those, <laughs> like you can't, you probably can't change that. It's, it's a value as long as you're not in a hurry. Right. If you don't want to be the sort of person who is finally publishing a book you started 16 years ago, it's, you know, that's uh, it, it can become a challenge. But I don't know. I, I think for better or worse, that's when I do my, my best work when I stumble upon things. Uh, and, you know, and, you know, I can go back later and cut out the boring things and, and stitch it together in such a way that it, that it all feels purposeful. But, you know, I talk to my students, you know, I, I teach creative writing now and, you know, all writers have different processes, but I, I think for a lot of writers, it's the stuff that we don't know we're doing that's the most interesting. You know, the things that we accidentally happen upon. Um, you know, so you can be driven by a, a purpose, and I, and I was at some level, but for me, the joys of the book were the things that I discovered accidentally that had the richest possibilities. And when you say that, can you are you thinking of a couple of things that you discovered unexpectedly. I, th I think it's, you know, it's just the characters that I discovered more than anything else. You know, it's the, it's Clementine, the, the little girl who is growing up in the city and has never known anything else, but has her own sort of imagination about the space. You know, she's trying to process what this world means for her and what her future will look like. And her great grandmother who, you know, has lived here her whole life and has just decided to do something else, having no idea what she's doing. You know, she becomes, you know, community gardening is sort of an elevated, elevated way of describing it because she's not a part of anything. She just decides one day to go out and put a seed in the ground and has no idea what she's doing. And it was fun to watch that struggle and watch her become something that she didn't see coming. Um, so I think, I think, and, and, you know, even, even Ruth Freeman discovering the depths of her, you know, when she started out, she was merely a, a target of activists animosity and it would be easy to dismiss her and hate her as an agent of evil, which, you know, she is sort of involved with a company that's up to no good, but it was more interesting for me to take her seriously, uh, and imagine a more rich life for her and a more complex view. And because I did that, you know, that the chapter that I was reading from, you know, it sort of, it takes her through her, her childhood and up to the riots when the city started changing completely or she started becoming aware of it. But ultimately the chapter circles around to her awareness of, of how naive she was growing up there, all the things that she didn't see, all of the problems that had been set in motion a long time ago that she and all of the people she knew were ignorant of. Uh, which, you know, brings us back around to the to the present. Uh, and I, I never would have gotten there if I hadn't just decided to think about who she really was uh, and what it what it meant to have seen this place from, you know, from its heights, you know, and it, having been a person of, of some privilege during that time. And so having that nostalgia and now looking back and feeling that sense of regret and responsibility, you know, she she looks upon the city and sees the trouble but she also sees some of the blame that she she has for that for what's what's become of the city 
How did you know when Angels of Detroit, when you were done? (laughs) You know, I think not just with this book, with anything, I, I, I could very easily continue writing it. To the, to the end of time. In some ways, that would be much easier than publishing it. You know, things things just start getting weird and anxious when the book is finished and you have to separate yourself from it. And I think there's a part of me that would just as soon hold these books to my bosom the rest of my days and keep, keep writing them. I mean, they feel like living objects in this story. You know, I, I feel like I could keep writing this and it, and it could go on and on and there, there are more parts to it. Uh, you know, at, at a certain point, I think I just, I felt like I reached a moment where, you know, I, the project and I understood one another. And, you know, I, I'd reached a point of closure, not all points of closure. Uh, and it's, you know, and it's an interesting moment for the book to be coming out, too, because, you know, I started this, it's 15 years ago, and Detroit was a different Detroit then. It was much more a Detroit of ruins and... uh a lot of those ruins are gone now. And so it it feels, I think, more now than it did then that it's a city of possibilities, even if we don't know what shape those possibilities, what form they'll take. Um, so it's, you know, the, the book is sort of arriving at a moment when Detroit is in its transition moment. And I think that's why, you know, some of the reviews of local media has, have been about that. Like in, in some ways you do want to look at the book as, how we arrived at this moment, but thinking, okay, but now we're we're heading in a different direction. Right. And maybe Clementine is that perspective. Yeah. It's, it's been interesting to see to you because of as the, the young child. And mm-hmm. yeah. Well, the title angels of Detroit, I think has suggested to, a, you know, led the eye of a lot of readers to ponder that question. Okay, so who are the angels? You know, who are the angels of the story? And I think a lot of people do, land on Clementine, you know, and maybe it's because she's young, but also because she's hopeful and she lives in this place, but is not defeated by it. But don't you see all the characters as, or what, what's yeah. your take on it? What, yeah, do, you, their, what their do you say, Chris Hebert? Well, I find it interesting, you know, because it's a book with so many voices, you know, I hear from readers who are adamant that there's one particular character who is the best and most important, and it's always somebody totally different. I love them all; they're they're all my they're all my children. Uh, and I, yeah, I mean, I think you know there are a lot of flawed characters. They're all flawed characters in deep and profound ways. Some more flawed than others, but you know, for me, that's what makes them interesting. It what makes the story interesting. It makes Detroit interesting. Detroit is a deeply flawed place, and I think it's. It's only natural that we have all of these flawed... and deeply, deeply human, <laughs> but it's, deeply human. This is, this Absolutely, is, yeah. Not that we're deeply flawed, Chris, <laughs> but we are at the end of the time. <laughs> um, thank you so much for talking with me today on Living Writers. Thanks for having me. Thanks and, for all the great questions. And well, and come back anytime. It's and been a... uh, you're always welcome. And um, and you actually have like another. Your next project is on deck, right? With University. Oh of yeah, there's Tennessee a scholar, Press. a scholarly project. It, uh, yeah, stories of nation. Fictions, politics, and the American experience. Yeah, so it's about political fiction, which is something that certainly intersects with my creative work. I I write about a lot of political backdrops. So everyone, look out for this one coming soon as well. And today you've been hearing us talk about Angels of Detroit, a novel by Christopher Hebert. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. You've given me a true love And every day I thank you, love
Living in America. This is 88.3 WCBN FM Ann Arbor. You're listening to the Daily Sports Report. I'm your host, Jeremy Parks. Joining me on the other side of the glass, Emily Harrard, Chris the intern, and Paul, is it Shaloub? Yes. Yes? Okay, right into the mic, Paul. Paul is a new member here at the Daily Sports Report, so we're going to open up with a very important question that I like to ask a lot of people that come on the show. What is the greatest Rocky film of all time? Uh, I guess I can start. Chris can start? Okay, that's um, fair. I can. Uh, I, I can't say that I've seen them all. Rotten Tomatoes doesn't like some of them, and I know that's the number one thing I look at when I'm thinking of movies. Um, but I did see the Ra- Rocky Balboa in 2006, the one... That one's awful. Hey, man, Skip Bayless was in that one, so I knew who that was, and then he came out of retirement and he lost. That was my favorite part of the whole movie, is that he didn't win. I thought that was great. Right. Well, I think I, I automatically have a wrong answer because I haven't seen any of them. This, <laughs> um, that's But I mean, if Skip Bayless was in one, then, I mean, I feel like I have to watch that just to kind of laugh at him. Cause that's awful. That's one of my favorite hobbies. Skip's the man. But that's not how you judge a Rocky movie. Oh, like, okay, if, this is Skip Bayless good. in it? Yes. This <laughs> All done. That is the worst round of answers I think I've ever heard. Paul, can you save this? Can I, save I really can't because I haven't seen any of them either, except, <laughs> the, except for the last one. I saw like the most recent one with the with Michael Jordan's son. Creed. Yeah. yeah. This is which I mean I liked it. Horrifying. <laughs> what? Maybe what? we should just start watching them right now. Rocky one, going up against Apollo Creed. He's he's like an enforcer for the mob and like decides to become a boxer. And he has the greatest fight ever in the ring with Apollo Creed, trading blows until literally at the end they're just holding each other to keep each other up at the final bell. Aww. Rocky, Adrian, like that. Uh, that's Rocky one, right? And it's a it's a, a decision in favor of Apollo Creed. He wins in the first one. Rotten Tomatoes, ninety four percent. Go on. I hate that you're using Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> as a gauge for this. Rocky two, they finally rematch. Another incredible fight in the ring. Rocky and Apollo, now friends. Rocky beats Apollo by knockout after almost going down, gets up at the count of nine, comes back up, hits a knockout. WWE style, I like Exactly. Yeah. Right. It was like an RKO out of nowhere to speak <laughs> to your proclivities, Chris. Thank you. Um, and anyways, Rocky wins in Rocky 2, and that's when he starts yelling like, yo, I did it. Like, and that's, that's Rocky 2. Rocky 3, you got Clubber Lang, a.k.a. Mr. T, another fantastic one. Clubber Lang is like this super cocky, boxer out of chicago who just has overwhelming power rocky wins it again obviously obviously and then without a doubt the best rocky film of all time sure where your opening track came from today that's okay. james brown living that's in why america none of us knew it go on right fantastic song could very well be the national anthem of this country okay, talking well. about super highways coast to coast like all night diners keeping you up all night tell me why it was so good because so here's the start this this movie came out i want to say 89 like very close to the fall of the wall right and you've got rocky in retirement apollo creed coaxed out by the russian ivan drago it mr like super steroid filled like the russians have been training him in siberia and like he's just this ba like (laughs) from the Soviet Union, right? Okay. And then he fights Apollo Creed, but Apollo Creed thinks he's going to whoop him. So he comes out with this, like, James Brown song, and it's, like, all about America, like, we're going to kill communism. And then Ivan Drago kills Apollo Creed in the ring. He hits him. him. So, yes, he... He He dies. He dies. Spoiler alert. Jeez. And And Rocky is on the side of the ring watching his friend be destroyed. By Tell this me he Russian. gets in the ring and he fights and he beats this guy. Rocky goes that. into an intensive training montage yes. that is only found in the Rocky movies. Goes and works.